So this third session is going to be on the scripture, the Bible, as the means of Christian self-government. We have been spending our time together these last three months now uh, focusing on what does it mean for a man to be a Christian man and what does that entail? So the first month we spent time looking at Genesis and the calling of Adam to be the vice regent, the co-ruler of the earth uh, on God's behalf. We saw that Adam had fallen, and so in Christ, man must be redeemed and restored to that original task of dominion. Notice clearly that in Genesis, the call to be fruitful and multiply is never revoked. Although Adam was supposed to have right dominion over the earth, he sinned, and that dominion was in a sense lost. And we rightly remember at this time of year, as we're preparing for ascension, that in Matthew's gospel, he records the words of Christ saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus took back dominion, and so in Christ, as men, we are supposed to walk in that freedom. So being restored in Christ to the task of dominion, redeemed man has to live in obedience to his father. Remember, we saw how Adam was supposed to rule over the earth, but he himself had to subject his own obedience to the one command of God to not eat from the tree. He had reign over the garden, reign over the earth, all of the beasts, birds, and fish. All of them were to be used by him. He had the right to use them in a way that glorified God as he saw fit within God's dictates. However, not only not even he was allowed to take from the tree. So, as we are redeemed in Christ, we have to begin to learn how to relate in obedience to the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God has given to man his word, that is the scriptures, and they are a perfect and complete revelation of his nature, his laws, what he wants to take place, his salvation, his plan for creation. So not only where he is in himself, but also what he has said should happen on his earth, what happened instead, and then what he did about it, the plan of redemption, and then his plan for his creation, where this is going, that vision for uh, the es eschaton or es eschatological reality. So man can only obey his Lord insofar as he is informed and shaped according to that word. So we are not thinking about ourselves in Christ as Christ has cleaned the slate and now we get to start over and do it our way. We have to learn the words of our king who loved us and gave himself up for us and we have to obey his word. So you can think of it like a king and a, a subject in his kingdom. The subject loves the king. This is not a tyrant. This is a, this is a wonderful king. But that subject could never seek to do the king's heart if he never hears the king's heart. And so as Christians, we hear the heart of our God and our Lord in the scriptures and nowhere else. 
So here's our aim for today. As God's word is more vital than bread, because it is more vital than bread, more life-giving than bread, we have to renounce apathy and neglect of it, taking it up to find precious prohibitions and promises. I hope this becomes a way that you think about the scriptures. The scriptures include more than this, but you can categorize most verses as prohibition or promise. So thou shalt not versus honor thy father and mother. Why? That you would live long in the land. That's a promise. You see how those two things work? So last month we saw in our time the necessity of the new birth. We cannot seek to be Christian men unless we are Christian men. So we saw the necessity of the new birth and the vitality of faith-filled obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit. Does he who supplies the Spirit among you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing? And hearing presumably would be the gospel, the word of Christ, the scriptures. Hearing with faith. So everything in the new birth happens by faith. We get our start in Christ by faith and we continue. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. It doesn't mean that we come to Christ in grace, that we receive forgiveness in grace and then have to perfect ourselves in order to continue to grow, but rather we continue in the same way. We take a hold of the great and precious promises and by them we transform our opinion to God's opinion. That is, we subject our thinking to God's thinking. Further, we saw that God supplies his spirit to his saints through the means of the word. The spirit does not come to you in a kind of seeking in the woods with your little spirits. Have you, have you seen these sticks that, that men used to use on the earth? The water divining sticks? They'd, they'd point them around and they'd kind of wander in the wilderness and they would hope to, you see this in the Princess Bride, right? With Inigo Montoya, he's got this sword and it, he's just, Father, guide my sword. That's not how we do Christianity. We are not out there seeking to get downloads from the Spirit apart from the written word. Now, by that, I am not denying that God uses his word in unique ways from time to time to bring correction and encouragement to a body. That is true, but prophecy always accords with the word. We do not need any more revelation, is what I'm getting at. The scriptures are totally sufficient. So, by way of introduction of where we've been and where we're going, Adam revolted against God's prohibition of the fruit of that tree. In Christ, man is renewed to joyfully live in submission to God's command. We saw in Romans that the the goal of salvation was that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us, fulfilled in us. So, we are not antinomians. We don't believe that As Christian men, we've been renewed by Christ and now we can live however we wish. And so therefore, as those who desire to obey God in every area, we must read and believe his entire word. I'm going to say something to you that maybe no one has ever told you before. Your goal in life as a Christian should be to understand the scriptures completely. That should feel like a very big goal, And that should feel, hopefully by God's grace, like an attainable goal. Now, do I think by doing that you will memorize the genealogies and numbers? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it is possible for a Christian to understand throughout his life the sum and substance of the scriptures. 
Now you will always be constantly learning more from the scriptures, but the goal should be that you engage the scriptures consistently to learn everything that there is to know that is necessary for salvation and godliness. So we must read and believe his entire word as I'm going to prove because his entire word is our daily sustenance, our defense, and our communion. So I'm going for three things today. Why are we spending so much time before we get to the more manly topics that you were anticipating in this group? The reason is, if we try to do things like become Christian husbands and become better Christian husbands and become better Christian fathers without grounding it all in Christ, then it is it is already destined to perish because all of life was made, everything in creation was made by God to glorify Jesus Christ, to glorify the grace that was displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if everything in life is not rooted in the central work of the cross, receiving forgiveness, receiving new life, and joyfully being transformed into those sorts of people who would walk with the Spirit in exalting Jesus Christ, then none of our efforts to be better fathers or better husbands are even important because they're self-focused, they're self-directed. They just have a view of fixing the problems and pains in our life. Everything in the Christian life must be grounded in exalting God, glorifying God, delighting in enjoying God. And from that place, we are given the energy of the Spirit to obey. So that's why we're going through, we went through in the first month, the theology of man. Who is man supposed to be? What did man do? What does man need? Which is sin and redemption. He, he, he committed sin. He needs redemption. He has redemption in Christ. And then from there, how do we live out the new birth? It has to be spirit-inspired. It has to be spirit-energized. And then now, how do we get more of the spirit? And my, my whole view here today is that we're going to look at three things. First, the gracious gift that the word of God is to us. How is the word grace? How is the word a means of God's grace? And then I want to look at three practical things. And so here we're beginning to see the rubber meeting the road in the bread being eaten daily. Give us this day our daily bread. That's my metaphor here, is that the scriptures must become, you need them to become for you, daily sustenance, daily communion with God. The second thing I want to talk about is learning how to wield a sword. Uh, I used this in a sermon illustration. Many of you probably forgot the illustration, but I bought a very sharp knife to slice open a half leg of lamb at Easter. And there was one moment while I was working on it where I did something extremely foolish. And I put the knife down and I, I said to myself for a second or two, this is a knife I've never used before. I need to be much more careful than that. I poked my finger. I didn't draw blood because I saw it happen. I saw the slip. But I, I reevaluated my flippant approach to filleting open a half leg of lamb because I realized I hadn't known what I was doing and I should be more prepared. So learning how to wield the sword of the spirit, we ought to not take it up flippantly. 
just many of many of you have seen a few people in our church learning how to use firearms properly. There are a thousand dangers that attend using firearms properly. You have to train. You have to learn safety. You have to learn protocol. There are special rules that are related to those things. So in learning how to defeat sin by the word of God, I'm saying that we need to go through training. We need to take a fencing class, so to speak. And then finally, communion in the word. How is the word supposed to be our communion with God? Should prayer merely be self-directed, us bringing petitions, or should we rather use, as I'm advocating, the word of God in order to commune with God? So I want to look at the gift of the word. The scriptures that we have are not a collection of archaic documents that have been somehow preserved by men and written by men, but rather they are the direct result of God granting men wisdom to perfectly record his word for man. As God's perfectly revealed word, they are not simply devotional material. This is very important. When many of us come to the scriptures, we read them hoping to get some sort of devotional material out of them. And by devotional material, I I mean the sort of messages that give you the warm fuzzies. Reading in numbers has never produced, except for certain chapters, has never produced for me warm fuzzies. Uh, The genealogies never become, usually never become, except in certain places, never become sources for worship. Um... Rather, the scriptures are our standard for truth. So this is a claim if you've heard in in the presuppositional school, they are the standard of truth. And if you're part of the reform school, they are our only rule for faith and practice. So two things, they are perfect, they have no error, and they are our standard. So if someone comes along and says, brother, I really believe that you should give up playing the guitar, because we never see worship in musical instruments in the New Testament, you can shut them down with Psalm 150, right? Because the whole word is our standard for faith and practice. So God, therefore, his word reveals his nature, the nature of his creation, and especially of the creature, the nature of the creature who bears his image, that is man. So men do not think things about God's word that are true. Romans 1 tells us that all men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's like a beach ball being pushed down in a pool, and every once in a while, reality comes back to the surface. People suppress the truth about God's word, about him, and so the word is a perfect revelation of the nature of God, the nature of creation, and the nature of man. So man can only obey his Lord insofar as he is is ruled by his Lord's word. Again, that imagery of a king that you've never met, you've never read any of his words or any of his laws, you couldn't obey that king, nor could you say, I know that king, or I'm a good subject of the king. Therefore, there is nothing in the word that is lacking That is to say, the word does not have any lack. There's nothing that you need to know about life that cannot be learned from the word. That's a radically bold claim in our age where technological things are thousands of years advanced from the closing of the canon. But I believe that the scripture rightly attests it is the case. Everything that we face, every problem we have as men in God's word 
in, in men in God's world can be answered or informed by God's word. So I want to I go through a huge number of scriptures today. I have 16 passages on the docket. So I hope to just read a lot of scripture because my opinion is not what it matters. The word's opinion is what matters. So David in Psalm 19 reveals God's word as not merely factual instruction. This, this is where many attempts at becoming better Christians go astray is we take the word and we think these are things that will just inform our minds. Rather, the word is a love gift from the father to his beloved children, restoring them in all parts of life. The Christian man, every man indeed, is not just mind. He does not just live from thoughts. He has a soul. He has affections. He has the capacity and need for joy. And so God's word is given for that. We read this last night at the prayer meeting, Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's your mind. Thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think about that. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the, Lord, of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Do you see anatomy here? Hopefully you get, you get in your mind one of those pictures of a cutaway view of a man. and the, the psalmist is saying the word applies here, the word applies here, the word applies here. It's dissecting the theology of a man and it's saying the Lord's word is what's needed for health in every place. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. I hope you think about that for a, a while. I do not value the word more than gold. I, I just want to be clear. I'm saying that I do not, I'm saying that I need to live this way. I'm not trying to be a master over the word here. I'm, I'm trying to show how the, ma- the word should master us. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Hopefully, as Christian men, we want a great reward in Christ. There's a great reward in keeping the scriptures. Paul likewise commands Timothy that the scriptures have an aim. That aim is to equip man with wisdom to work in God's world. So remember, Adam is supposed to tend the garden, keep it, protect it, extend its bounds, beautify it, and not eat from the tree. Promise and prohibition. And so now with the scriptures, we are now in Christ. We're new little Adams. We're new little Christs. We're Christians. And we are supposed to be living according to God's word. Look at what Paul tells Timothy. 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. The Greek word for whom is plural, not singular. And how, from, he's not talking about himself, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are, wise to make, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just want to answer an objection here. Paul is writing to Timothy, an elder over the church. 
And so he uses the phrase man of God. And so I don't have to obey that because I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a man of God. Well, unfortunately, the, for your argument, the new covenant is a covenant in which all of mankind in Christ is supposed to be kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Revelation 5, kings and priests who reign on the earth. So your objection is overruled by the word of God because the word of God presents you as someone who needs to come to maturity in Christ. So by the man of God, he doesn't mean pastors. It's an unfortunate thing that that word, that phrase has been conflated in our culture. So Paul's command to Timothy shows us the value of lifelong reading in scripture. Verse 15, from childhood, you have been acquainted Why was Timothy ready to be an elder? He was probably a pretty young convert. There were probably older people on his island or in his place than Timothy. The reason why is he had had a life that was shaped by the scriptures. So, not only does Timothy gain salvation, but he becomes competent, equipped for every good work. And every good work is a very important idea because there are lots of good works that need to be done in our world. If you want an example of that, come over to my house. We will go to Xenia Avenue and and we'll just walk and talk with people. There are lots of good works that need to happen in this earth. So maturity, therefore, is only possible if we prepare our minds for action. First uh, Peter 10, First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 13, Peter shows that the prophets the, the ones who wrote the, pro, the prophets in the scriptures, they were searching and inquiring not out in the fields. They were searching and inquiring in the Pentateuch, as we're going to see here in a few minutes. God has graciously gifted man with everything he needs to know for life. So the way that we prepare our minds for action, according to Peter, is not merely just thinking more about our systematics. Right? We don't just rehearse in our minds the order and process of salvation. We don't even just meditate on the verses that we already know. What Peter's telling us to do, set your hope more firmly, is to set our minds on the word. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, and then uh, some more verses in the later part of the chapter. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's nothing that you need in life that isn't permitted or or given to you uh, by God's divine power. So you think of this verse as as a single man who wants to be married, and you say, I need a wife to be complete. I need a wife for godliness. And 2 Peter says, you've been given everything that's necessary for life and godliness. How did he give it to us? through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So where are those? They're not detached ideas that float in our minds. They're in the word. So that through them, making use of them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I I changed the way those words were said, having escaped. He's saying, past tense, you become a partaker having escaped. So the way that we become partakers and the way that we escape corruption in the world, as 1 John also would teach, is that we escape and overcome the world by the word. 
Moving on in Second Peter, he's writing a bunch of ideas, and I've kind of put an ellipsis here, and I'm jumping all the way to verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we've gone through some passages that we already have heard, but I just want to lay the foundation for the scriptures are not the opinions of men. They are not the writing down of moral platitudes and rules. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took hold of people and moved on their faculties, their minds and their hearts in such a way as to record. Now, I do not believe and I do not think the scriptures teach in what is called the dictation view of the inspiration of the, the scriptures. The Holy Spirit did not come down and, and whisper into Matthew, okay, the beginning, that's not how the scriptures came about. But still, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit carried along men. So you can think of this as, as the apostles are sitting down and they're getting ready to record what they remember about the, the work of Jesus Christ. Just probably a few years after he ascended, Matthew starts writing down notes. And the Holy Spirit is highlighting certain things. And Matthew's then reflecting. And then he's continuing to write. And so this process is one in which God has informed and shaped these people to write what is necessary for us. The Holy Spirit moved men to speak, and that speech was written down so that God's children would have a lamp in a dark world. This is grace from God. These scriptures are grace from God because we live in an extremely dark world. So for if we are to do well, uh, therefore, if we are to do well, we must pay attention to the entire prophetic word. So remember this, to which you do well to pay attention. So the opposite is if we don't pay attention, we won't do as well. So I said this earlier, I want to restate it. Learning the entire counsel of God is not beyond our reach. Now do... Do I mean that you won't ever learn more from the scriptures? That would be a very bad goal, is to stop learning from the scriptures. However, there are whole places in the scriptures that you have never read or thought about that are helpful for you, as we're going to see in just a minute, that are deeply important for how you think about overcoming temptation, doing works of service, worshiping the God who made you, understanding how you were saved and giving glory to him because of that. There are whole places in scripture where we are deficient and so we should have a personal goal for our life as I'm not going to end my life or spend much of my life not having gone deep in God's word and understanding it. So only after a child is trained is he ready for maturity. Think about how we have set up education in our, our country. I'm not advocating for it, but just think about it. Many of the nations of the world and cultures of the world have had similar forms, though not in the exact same way. In our world, 
we send a child to school or homeschool them basically until they're about 20 years old. So they spend one quarter of the average life of their time on the earth getting ready to live. And so a child is trained every single day until the commencement. Now you get Saturdays off and Sundays are for the Lord. But the point is you have daily, you, we don't send our children to school or educate them you know, on Monday and then on Thursday and give Tuesday and Wednesday just up for free time. We use time and we invest it in children until they are mature enough to handle life on their own. That's the, that's the goal of education. So once a man is mature, there's a commencement. There's a setting apart to the work of life to fulfill his calling, his or her calling, in whatever way that they, he or she has discerned that he's supposed to do. So God has set man in his world to live in a daily rhythm, including rest, instruction, work, and feasting. Think about just a day. You begin from a place of rest. You then get ready. You then do work. At work, you receive instruction, either from the market, your customers, or your boss. You take that instruction. You work according to that instruction. We need this many pallets. We need this function. We need these things installed. And then from there, you execute. And then there is a step at the end of the day that you either get paid or your paid's deferred for a few days. From there, you go home, you feast, and you go to rest. There's an arc to that day. And God has given man a world in which the day is our time frame. We can't escape the day. I've done a lot of reading. Uh, this is totally outside the point of today. But I've done a lot of reading on these experiments that people have done trying to break out of the day-night reality that they've been installed in, and it never works well. People can go a few days without sleep, and then mental faculties and emotional capacities break down in terrible ways. It's God's world, and we live in his world in a pattern. So we normally, unless we're fasting, we eat every day, right? At certain places in that ark, we eat. Why? Because we need energy. We need calories. We need nutrition. We need energy to do work. Therefore, just as physical food is vital to our physical life, God's word is vital to all of life. Paul tells Timothy that godliness has great value for the present life and the life to come. So Christ showed us this reality as he defeated Satan's temptation to prove his identity through making bread. So we've talked about this before. We talked about this, uh, I believe, last month. Um, and Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's tempted by the adversary, Satan. And the temptation is not just to eat food, but rather, in verse 3 of Matthew 4, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So what's the temptation? It's to doubt his knowledge that he is God's Son. This is right after his baptism in which the father had just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now he, that word is being challenged. And the way that that word is sustained in Christ's life is that he responds according to the word. He's, his chief temptation is not hunger. There's a subtle 
a subtle temptation under that temptation. There's a greater temptation. Verse four, but he answered, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's very helpful to note that even Jesus Christ, a sinless, perfect, incarnate God-man, used the word of God as his basis for rejecting the temptation. He didn't say, no, I don't want that. He placed himself under the word. It is written. So, further, in quoting Deuteronomy, Christ demonstrates how to use all of Scripture, drawing out a binding ethical command from a historical event. I want to say that again because those are big words. Jesus just took a piece of history in the life of Israel reflected on it beforehand because he quoted it as you know unleashing that sword against a serpent he quoted it showing that he had already given meditative contemplative thought to what does this word have to say about my life but it's very important to see that the words that he is quoting are in the history of the wilderness they're not even just in the ethical commands So thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Ethical commands, we all know those apply. Jesus shows us that this very obscure verse hidden in Deuteronomy 8.3 has a binding ethical commandment to him. So he's extrapolating from the history of Scripture saying God did this in history with Israel to teach them something and as the real Israelite, I have to learn that lesson as well. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So here's a question. Does the disobedience of Israel nullify the promise of God? Not at all. Deuteronomy 8, 3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And here's where Jesus Christ defeats the temptation. He takes the historical event and turns it into ammo, spiritual energy, to defeat the temptation. Why did God let you hunger and fed you with manna? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So, I just want to state, this is not an aspiration. The writer, Moses, as he's recording what he just said to Israel, he's not saying you should value the word more than your physical food. He's saying you, it's the reality in which you live. Just like you can't stop sleeping in, because it's the way that God designed the world in which you live, You can't live if you don't read God's word and eat it. So how quickly we are disturbed by physical hunger and yet how lightly are we troubled when we fail to read God's word. I'm confessing sin here. I am very dramatically troubled when I don't eat for two or three days. I've never been dramatically troubled if I don't get my Bible reading done. Now, I'm being hyperbolic. I love the word it pains me. I repent of these things. But at the same time, I'm, I'm saying I do not value the word as much as I should. And I think all of us would agree we've 
often thought we don't value. So, so what do we need to do to value the word more? Christ's teaching here is not suggestive or preferential, but it is reality. When we don't eat the words of God, we are starved for joy and completely defenseless against the temptation of evil. So think about it. If Jesus had not read Deuteronomy 8, where would he have found a specific rebuttal to the temptation of Satan in that moment? I don't know where he would have found it. And the reason I'm highlighting that is because all Scripture, not the New Testament, not the Psalms and the Proverbs, all Scripture, the obscure places of Scripture, Obadiah was given to you that you might be competent for every good work. Micah was given to you, right? That's, that's what I'm getting at. Deuteronomy, the, the genealogies and numbers, they're given to us that we would be competent and we would have joy in God and have mighty defense against temptation. So Jeremiah 15, 16, I've memorized this and it's become very precious to me. Jeremiah's talking to the Lord, your words were found. Do you know there was a time in the history of Israel where they lost the law? If you've never read that story, that should terrify you. Praise God that he sustained them. They lost the Bible. Their entire culture had misplaced the copies of the law. That's how deficient they were in using God's word. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called, do you see how he moves to worship? For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Do you see how he does that? Your words were found, I ate them, they became a joy to me, they became a delight. They weren't necessarily a delight while eating. Sometimes there are bones, not in God's word, but in the way we read it. So, if Christ can find such a powerful supply against temptation from a simple historical detail, how much more supply can we find on every page? Just read Deuteronomy 8 and just see how very quickly that thought is said and then moved on from. Further, if Christ used the word of God to defeat Satan, how much more must we take up God's word for for our defense? So again, Christ is sinless. Christ has spent years studying in the temple and living in subjection to his parents, honoring his father and mother that it might go well with him. And he bases his own defeat of the temptation to sin based on the word. We, on the other hand, have ongoing remaining corruption. Although we are new creations in Christ, we still are told to put to death the old man. How do we do it? How do you put to death someone in that culture? You don't use a gun. You use a sword. The Christian, therefore, has only one weapon, not his opinion or his thought, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you've been in church for any amount of time, especially in Sunday school, you have heard, put on the whole armament of God. And the, the number one preaching idea, just on a, on a low-hanging fruit, is there is only one weapon in the litany of defenses. There's shoulder plates, there's breastplates, there's shields, there's shoes, a belt. There is one offensive quality, and it's the word of God. This weapon is not wielded in any other way than how Christ defeated temptation in the wilderness. How did he do it? He responded to a temptation, he saw the root of it, and spoke the word of God 
into the situation. This subtle yet clear imagery in the entire Bible, it weaves throughout the scriptures to train us how to daily fight. So you're thinking, I've got this indwelling sin, this habitual sin, which constantly snares me up. How do I gain victory over it? Well, if it's think like lust or pornography, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to install a blocker. I'm going to get an accountability group. I'm going to make sure I'm never near the internet. Brothers, if you walk down the street, you can lust in your heart. You cannot defeat lust by filters and blockers. You should get those if you need them. They should be helpful to you. But you can't conquer sin by isolating and building walls. You have to conquer sin by mortifying the flesh. And the only way we mortify the flesh is by we pick up a sword and we kill it. Revelation 19.5 shows us, we don't have time to go there, it shows us at the end of Scripture this pattern which weaves throughout all of Scripture, out from Jesus' mouth proceeds a sword. So I just want you to imagine, word of God, sword, mouth, proceeds. So think about Adam in the garden. He's standing there while Eve, the woman, and the serpent are talking. What should he have done? He should have spoken. He should have stepped between the serpent and the woman and put himself in the danger, and it's always difficult in war, right? This is, when you're doing hand-to-hand combat with swords, there is a very real likelihood that you will die or be infected, or, or somehow from the battle. It's dangerous, but it's the only way to fight. So, the first Israelites to enter the land were given gracious promises by which they were to obey in faith through memorization and meditation. Deuteronomy 30, 11 and 14, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, So right there, I would just say that most of what we think about the law of God has to be repented of. That the law was this harsh thing that no one could ever do. Now it's true that Paul says the the working of the law will not produce a justification of the flesh. That is true. It's scripture. It's clear scripture. However, this idea that the law is so demanding and so perfect that the Israelites couldn't have completed it has to be denied because he says, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. So what he means is not perfect completion of the law, but living in the way that God had set up Israel to work in such a way as when they sinned, they brought a sin offering or a guilt offering. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that, that by teaching in verse 11, the commandment's not too hard, that they would have been perfect, but rather God instituted a remedy for their failures. The commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So Jesus has a sword which proceeds from his mouth. The Israelites were supposed to memorize Moses' words by heart. Have you ever heard that phrase in English? The reason we have that phrase in English is because our culture was so thoroughly Christianized. That's what we're supposed to do with the word. We're not supposed to learn it by vain repetition. We're supposed to learn it by heart. The reason that phrase is used is because we have to transcend from mind to heart in memorization and meditation. Why do I state this so clearly? Because Deuteronomy later tells us, two chapters later in Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47, he said to them, take to heart all the words 
by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life, and by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You see how that's prohibition and promise in one? Take this to heart, command, that you might be able to live long, promise. So their lack of obedience does not mean that that promise was void. We know that Israel failed to obey that command. Amen? They went off into exile. They multiplied the number of gods they worshipped. They destroyed the land. They forsake God's grace and rejected all of his promises. Just because they were disobedient does not mean the promise was void or powerless or pointless but rather it shows us all the more the danger and deceitfulness of sin. If a nation which was delivered by superhero movie-like powers could in just a few weeks move to grumbling and complaining against God, how much more must we take seriously the command to guard our hearts by the word? So as their leader, it's, it's in Deuteronomy and then it's in Joshua, um, Numbers is in, uh, is in there too. There, there's some commandments about Joshua. Nevertheless, Joshua is the leader to replace Moses. Moses told them, take these words to heart. The word is not far from you, but it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. And then Joshua is told by Moses how he is to lead. This book of the law, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Commandment, prohibition, don't let it depart from your mouth. Promise, you will have good success. You will make your way prosperous. So how did Abraham become righteous, or was was seen, verified to be righteous? God gave him a promise. He believed in it so as to obey. The Israelites did not all do that. Now, Joshua, we, we believe, did that pretty well based on the scriptures. The point is that Joshua's obedience was dependent upon perpetual day and night reflection on God's law. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, it, meditate on it day and night. If you remember in our sermons, we talked about merisms, right? He doesn't mean just one time in the day and one time at night, and we've done day and night and we're good. He means continually throughout your life, throughout your day. By meditating on the law, Joshua would see God's perfection and his grace and his inability and the promises of a Messiah. So Genesis 3.15, God's going to send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Joshua would have meditated on that and said, oh, I remember there were serpents back in the wilderness and they killed us. And we weren't able to stomp on their heads. And he would have thought, boy, we need... You, you see what I'm getting at? The, the law of God, all parts of Scripture, contain promises and prohibitions, not just of obedience on our levels, but putting forth the glories and necessities of Christ. And Joshua would have, would have been sustained. As the Psalms open, we are again instructed that every Israelite is to imitate Joshua in his obedience. But his delight, the blessed man's delight, is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
do you think David's quoting Joshua 1.8? I do. He's, he's saying Joshua was supposed to be a prototypical Israelite. Now I'm writing this psalm, blessed is the man who doesn't walk, dot, 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 but he meditates on it day and night. The Hebrew writer commands us to slay disobedience by turning that sword against the division of our own heart. In Psalm 78, it says that they forgot God's word. I'm paraphrasing here. It's a huge psalm. And then he slew them by the sword. Why? Because they didn't slay slay themselves. And by this, I don't mean to commit violence against yourself. I mean to take God's word and point it primarily against your own heart before you start to learn how to wield it against other spheres and other gardens. That's why we're doing this before we get to marriage and child raising and things like that. Hebrews 4.11, therefore, let us strive to enter rest. He said the Israelites didn't enter. Moses didn't enter. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see what he's implying there? They were supposed to enter by faith-filled obedience. He says it's possible for some of us who are reading Hebrews to fail in the same manner that they did, by not obeying in faith. Verse 12, so he says, Let us strive to enter. Why and how? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you think about what he's saying there, and he's saying that they, were, they didn't make it because they were disobedient. How are we supposed to make it? Strive to enter rest so you don't fall. And then he says, for. I think a better word would be therefore. Uh, it can go either way, or because of this, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Are we supposed to slay our neighbor? No, we're supposed to slay the things in our heart. Be careful lest any of you have an unbelieving heart. Moses told them that. So when he says the word is sharper than any two-edged sword, we're talking about open heart surgery here in a spiritual sense. My point is this, you cannot use a weapon you have not trained with. It is a very dangerous thing to take an untrained person to the gun range. I have seen terrible, frightening things. The first time I ever interacted with someone, who they swept the field with a loaded weapon. And we told them and we're watching them. And even with dramatic, you can do terrible things if you don't submit yourself to God's word and you just start bringing the word to bear against your family or, or your world or your work. You have to kill yourself first before you, and by that I'm speaking metaphorically, hopefully you are are understanding, we take the sword and we apply it to ourselves first in every instance, in every case. Likewise, scripture which is not stored up, which is not treasured, cannot be magically recalled in the moment of need. Psalm 119 verse 11, I have stored up other translations. I have treasured your word in my heart not in my mind alone, in, your, in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Any sin that you have in your life can be warred against by the word of God. So what do I mean by getting to communion in the word? Scripture reading and memorization are not merely mental exercises. By advocating and, and, and hoping to show the value of the word, 
I'm not wanting just mental reading. I don't think the scriptures want us to do this. Biblically speaking, our minds and our hearts shouldn't be divorced. There shouldn't be head knowledge without heart repentance and heart affection changing. So, as we read, memorize, and recall, we must engage our hearts in the truths of what we are hearing. This is not a call to more intense Bible reading without Bible meditation. Failure to receive God's word as treasure spoils the fruit. I mean that simply doing your allotment that day in your Bible reading plan and not pondering on what you're hearing will profit you nothing. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to help us. Luke 2, 18 through 19, all who heard it, what the shepherds had told them, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's a sort of gospel hearing or scripture reading, which just is kind of, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's neat that Nehemiah established the walls. Hmm. Treasuring, boy, my walls are run down in my life. Do you see that kind of idea? We have to take the word and we have to meditate it and say, man, if Israel went into exile and then the walls were broken down, how much more do I need good walls to be established in my mind and in my affections and in the way I live my life? So Mary treasures these things. Everybody else was perplexed. She treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary's example of treasuring, that is putting a value on what she heard and pondering, meditating on what she heard, show us the path out of simply listening to God's word. Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower and the soil shows that hearing the word lightly causes loss. So remember the parable of the sower and the soil. He spreads seed. Some of the seed falls among rocky ground and it can't take hold. Some of the seed falls among light soil, and it doesn't have dirt to cover it. And so it sprouts up really fast, but it doesn't have good roots. The sun comes up and scorches it. Other seed falls, and the seed just falls on the surface, and the birds of the air come and devour the seed. And Jesus explains that's the enemy snatching the word from your heart. The problem is most of us have functioning minds, and we think we heard that word, but we didn't receive that word. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Jesus explains that parable. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Verse 18, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So I, I take this to be Jesus' winnowing process by which the Holy Spirit is, in a sense, giving out talents during sermons and during Bible readings and during exhortations from brothers and sisters. I think what Jesus is saying is, take care then how you hear should radically shape the way we come to the Lord's Day worship. No matter who is preaching that morning, God's desire is that his word would gain entry into the hearts of his people and that he would inspire them. You cannot allow the word to gain entry in your life if you're sleepy and dull and too tired. 
That's just a very practical level of what it means to become a Christian man. It's to come to the Lord's day worship expecting God's word to gain entry and to produce, according to verse 15, the fruit that we can't produce of ourselves. So take care how you hear. Likewise, the Hebrew writer warns us of listening to God's word without faith. And I believe that faith in the scriptures is a childlike treasuring or a childlike reception, which receives something from the Father and holds on to it and loves it. I don't, I don't like doing this, but I just want to give an example of what it means to treasure like a child. And I'm going to use an example from my life. Bear with me. My wife and daughter went to the doctor's office. This time, my daughter didn't scream and cry at the doctor's entrance. Nevertheless, the doctor took a latex glove and he just did something really, to us, would be very silly. He just blew it up into a balloon and tied off the end. It kind of looked like a turkey. And you can imagine just a ball with little fingers. And my daughter carried that around our house for days, <laughs> saying, balloon, balloon. And that's really cute, but what we should take from a story like that is that gift to her was amazing. To you and me, we don't care about that, right? I, om- I was tempted to pop it once she put it away, just to, just to clean up and get... <laughs> Amen. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. I thought about that verse when I didn't... I was like, if I do this, it, it will clean it. And anyway, so, so childlike reception of God's word and treasuring it. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Hebrews 4, again, going back to verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. Remember this whole idea of it was too hard for them to do the law? It was too hard for them to obey? He says the gospel was preached. Good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not profit them, didn't benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So Abraham had child, children. He received the word in faith. Later, the New Testament says, not all who are of Abraham are of Abraham, not all who are descendants. They were not united by faith to the other people who were hearing with faith. There was a division in the camp. So as we engage God's word, we rightly should look in its mirror and turn to God in prayer. Much scripture is prayer and can therefore be used immediately without paraphrasing. I want to encourage you that as you're trying to um, reinstate the value and practice of reading God's word, you should also use it as your prayer book. Psalm 119 verses 17 through 19. This is a prayer that you could literally utter and or even point to your page and say, God, I don't do this. Help me do this. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So the contrary is true. If God doesn't open my eyes when I sit down to read, I won't see beautiful things in his law. I won't be radically transformed with love for his word. Verse 19, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. You can take that and you can pray that without any translation. Other scriptures require slight adjustment, slight meditation before being used as prayer. Often when reading God's word, we must simply confess as sin our lack of conformity to those verses. So you read 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church who loved her and gave himself up for her. I read that verse and I say, Lord, I haven't been doing that. I'm sorry. Please, please forgive me for that. Help me to imitate Christ, right? Take the word, turn it into a prayer. And so I petition God for help. More often, we must ask God for grace and faith to believe his amazing promises. The promises of the scripture are so amazing that they cannot be believed by the natural mind. They can't even be apprehended. And so most often when we are reading the scripture, the most common prayer that we should pray is, Lord, I can't believe this. It's too good to be true. How could you never leave me or forsake me? Help me to trust that you're true. So the scriptures are given to be our avenue by which we have authentic daily communion with God in prayer. Scripture reading is a one-way transfer of truth. It is not a one-way communication. God's, God's word is truth, and he gives it to us in our reading and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but then it must go from pondering in our heart to translation into prayer. God, help me believe. Help me receive. So I want to encourage you The word of God is the greatest thing you have. It is better than every house and car and wife and child. It is more valuable than gold, much fine gold. Now by that, I'm not saying that human beings are worthless, but rather you can't love those people unless you learn to love them in God's word. You can't imitate Christ unless you see how Christ loved you and we see that in his word. So I want to give some practical next steps. If you were going to say, man, I want to do this, I would encourage you to buy an app on your phone. Most of you have smartphones called Fighter Verses and memorize Jeremiah 15, 16 as a starting verse. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The reason why it's important to memorize is because in the moment when you have no joy or in the moment where you are caught off guard, you can take these verses and say, no, I'm not going to look at that pornography because Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God and I want to see God more than that. That's what you have to learn how to do as a Christian man. Um, or a Christian. None of that is specific to men, but we're getting there. So I would encourage you to listen to two sermons. John Piper's ministry has always been helpful to me. There are a few places that I disagree with him on certain things, but most of it's very good. The ultimate goal of reading the Bible is a sermon in which he says the ultimate goal is to see God. It's not just to make a practical use That's where we're going. Six reasons to read the Bible every day is another. Both of these are short 30 to 40 minute things that you could watch in a week or two to reinforce this message. And as a precursor to next week, or excuse me, next month, um, calcedon.edu, you can just search for this on Google, the biblical doctrine of government. I'm gonna print those out. I meant to print them out today to give away, but I wanna print them out for next week because we're gonna be starting to talk about Um, other things uh, that are a little bit more practical in our aim. Um, And by practical, I mean 
dedicated to specific domains, not uh, practical. This is extremely practical. The next month, we are going to be looking at what does it mean to walk as a Christian husband. And by this, I mean a person who is single, who wants to become married, a person who is single, who is in the process of courting and is on their way to being married, and then a person who is uh, already married. All of those are included in what, what I mean when I say how to be a, a Christian husband. So um, let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace in it. We pray, God, that it would become our joy and a delight to our heart. We pray that you would deliver us from any sort of guilt or shame in not valuing and treasuring your word. And Lord, also please deliver us by your grace alone. Deliver us from weak, light expectations of the supply of grace that comes through the word. Please help us to see, please help me to see the value of reading your word. Lord, we pray that these verses that we memorize would become great swords and daggers and uh, ready arms to wield against the temptations of the evil one. We pray that you would allow us to have minds and hearts that are quick to receive, that we would listen carefully and that we would bear fruit by receiving the implanted and meek word. Um, Lord, we ask you that you would give us grace in this area. Please help us. We do desire, God, to uh, live in such a way as that Christ would be exalted and glorified in everything we do, in everything we say, in every way that we act, that you would get your glory in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.